listening to The Running Public. From marathoners to mud runners, we all have the same goal. Get to the finish line faster. That's right. This podcast is for you guys, The Running Public. This is The Running Public's Training Tuesday. Training Tuesday is where we talk about training only. One topic, we dive deep, we explore it completely. It's training, it's Tuesday. Training Tuesday. Tuesday, Tuesday, Tuesday. Let's just start and see what happens if we hate it. We hate it. Kirk, how many times, if you had to guess, how many races did I run in 2022? Did a little. I did a little backtrack in the, this weekend and looking at my schedule, how I planned things versus how it turned out. Well, you've had yourself a year of surgery, so it can't be many. I'm going to say you raced four times. You're high. Oh, no. How many? One. High rocks. Doubles. High rocks with Cali. Doubles. Mm -hmm. So I have not even raced outside one time this year. Do you know how many races I signed up for and just ate the registration and or travel costs because I was unable to make it due to physical malady? Only because you mentioned it before we started recording. Circa day six. Yeah. And technically it's five because Ireland, I still traveled. I just didn't race. Okay. So five races and then a six. So I signed up for seven races this year and made it to the start line of one. Rough. What about you? Well, let me think. It wasn't many. Two in Jacksonville, one in San Luis Obispo, Zumbro Trail Race, Afton Trail Race, Probably five, maybe six, and then a time trial or two in there, 15-15 test, and a 5K, if those even count. So let's just say I raced six times, five times. Would you say that is your lowest number since the COVID year? I don't know. Le- the co- the COVID year? And yeah. prior to that, well, of course. previous five to ten years? For sure. Previous six to seven, yeah, I would say. Yet this I'm more in love lowest. with running probably than ever, which is a little ironic. Well, that's interesting, and I do want to get to that. This is my lowest number since, well, seventh grade. I raced six times, I think. So since I was... There's not many numbers lower than one, Bracken. Well, so sixth grade was the last time I raced probably one time that year. that I did that city run. So what would sixth grade be? 11 uh, you're 12 11 right? 12 12 yeah. you usually turn 12 in sixth grade okay so let's say 11 so 24 years this is my lowest race count and we we've had a few people i know you got a message this week you know pointing out to your lack of racing and questioning maybe why and i have a few people like we just don't see you out there at races anymore mm-hmm. but you are madly in love with racing and i am just being turned down over and over by the sport of running i just want Uh to be madly in love with it and it just doesn't want to date me she's in bed with me right now she don't get around yeah you 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 are in uh what a honeymoon stage with running that won't end i wouldn't say that but i think um i'm enjoying it for what it is because you're not racing all the time doesn't disqualify you from being a runner or an athlete I think running is probably treating me in its purest form right now um, with the fact that 
I'm not doing it for any extrinsic validation other than what it does for me, like personally. And so um, the need to race, although fit um, right now, has been, it's been bizarrely low. Bizarrely is probably not a word. But yeah, anyways, um, running's going well for me. Yes, that's what we're getting at. It's interesting. From the outside, it feels like you have fallen back in love with running. You got a new lease on it. You know, after you went to detox, you came out and just leaned into running. It Mm -hmm. kept you balanced. It kept nerves, you know, at bay at times. And then you've strung together weeks and then months. And then you're going to come up on a year of no lower leg injuries, which hasn't happened in years. And so you're at this stage where you just can't wait to run each time. And you're not even bothering with races because the act of running is so enjoyable. That's what it looks like from my perspective. Um, sure. I mean, yes. And I'm also filling my cup. Well, no, no, that's not wrong. I'm also filling my cup with things outside of racing. I've, I've, you know, put more time and energy into other things outside of racing, but it's easy for me to run, slip, you know, my shoes on in the morning and go for a run. Um, choosing to take time in the sport that we pursue often requires travel and weekend commitments and, so I've probably been exploring more passions than typical lately, making more time for other things other than racing while still enjoying the that daily makes sense. process. Yeah. So I think this is just before we start our episode, it's a good reminder to people that attending races has no bearing on your status as a runner. We obviously talk right. about getting to the finish line faster in all of our intros, but there is no race component to that that's mandatory as a runner if you run you're a runner and you're every bit as serious about your running as someone who races and the finish line doesn't have to be a finish line of a race it can be a goal it can be a workout it can be a long run it can be whatever you want it to be we just want to be better at it and and i think that's a good reminder to people that you cannot put a race metric on gauging people's relationship with running i agree with that nor how fast or slow they are as well Um, correct whatever results are being are being put out there doesn't qualify or disqualify you as being a runner how many miles per week it's more where your heart is i would say but you do bring this up because we were chatting before we started recording about um our intent to do more of it which is sort of what yeah. what i think you were going to get at yeah right now i have seven races that i have my heart set on doing in 2023 and probably double that of potential races I'd like to hit. Um, and, and one of the other goals is whenever there are little local trail races or whatever, I want to be in them. Just jump in, get a great yep. workout. So, yeah, I want to reengage in the racing community. But uh, it hasn't been for lack of desire. My body just hasn't been cooperative. I, w- I fell down a rabbit hole this weekend of uh, – of Will Ferrell movie outtakes, blooper reels. <laughs> okay, sure. And that's not the point of all this. But I saw he had some Talladega Nights bloopers. And in that one, he's Ricky Bobby. And his his saying for most of the movie is, if you're not first, you're last. And it's ridiculed that, you know, that's a terrible mindset. But I think that's the most freeing statement to live by ever. Because if you look at it from the opposite standpoint, If you look at it as the only purpose to race is to be first, and if you can't, then you suck, that's bad. But if you look at it as, listen, if you're not first, then second through 80th is all the same, then we're all the same. 
Like, if we don't have to worry about winning, then there are there are no more tears. Everyone's just equal in their pursuit to try to do better next time. So I, I it just kind of tied into all this that I thought it's interesting that that's a bad phrase, but it's also pretty freeing for us. Like if I take second at a race and you take 800th, neither of us won. We can both be pretty proud <laughs> in how we put our effort out. Uh, I see what you're getting at there. I, I guess not to side tangent uh, the beginning of this too much, but do you have intentions for 2023 as far as like, are you formulating anything or are you taking things one week at a time yeah. still? You are. Okay. I have plans and I have themes for the year and I am building open-ended. So yes, I have very specific plans and goals. I have them written down on my race calendar, on my training plan, but I'm not scripting out 30 or 60 or 100 weeks like I used to like to in the past. I'm putting out, like right now, I have 16 weeks of the same progression. And if it only takes four weeks, it only takes four weeks. And if I need all 16 weeks to get to the point where I'm running the amount and frequency that I want to be running and I'm back to flat ground and pavements and all that, whenever that hits, then I get to move to the next stage. So my races are there, but the, uh, the progression is very much, um, open-ended right now. That's how I like it. That's also, what's gotten me into trouble. I feel like I could use a few more Bracken tendencies or actually just general population tendencies, like book something two months out, buy the plane tickets, um, <laughs> commit to something ahead of time. Instead of being like, oh, I'll see how I feel. Then I'm like, oh, well, I could still wake up, do my long run at home, and then go do something else that I like to do with the rest of my day instead of commit the whole thing to a weekend. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe I need to I need to work on that. You could probably work on that too, actually. But for, for just reason, you aren't booking things in advance. I was just talking to, to a guy named Jason that I work with, and I was talking about the unbreakable pass for Spartan by how – even though it's kind of a ridiculous cash grab, it's also a really good deal if you're going to use it. Right. Because it's cheaper than just buying a season pass every year. And you get way more with it, which is fantastic. But uh, the only reason I didn't get it is because if I would have bought it three years ago, I would have used it a total of like nine or ten times now in the last three years. And I can't guarantee that moving forward it's any different. Like I have desires to race many times this year, but I just might not show up at any of those start lines with having no say in the matter. So yeah, I have definite plans for racing this year. We just get to wait and see if it happens. Good. Me too. And I'm past the point of promising anything. The The thing about it is, is that I, um, when I look back, like you have like your timeline, your running timeline over the years and there's highlights that stick out you know and you're like you can pinpoint either workouts or races and they're these either fond or saddening memories depending nonetheless like yes workouts i remember and some time trials i definitely stand out on my radar but still with like my relationship with running like my blips are definitely race oriented that like the highlight Mm -hmm. points on my timeline and and so i do intend to get back to that my full intention was actually to go pursue the spartan north american elite series uh, assuming the format was going to stay like the traditional format. And since it has changed, I have obviously reconsidered, we will say. So we will mm-hmm. be out there, though, in force. And we'd like to show up to some events we don't typically show up to. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Um, enough of that? Enough of that. Hard enough pivot? Of that? Well, well, one quick, <laughs> one quick plug is um, we have winter stocking running hats 
going into the fray this week, don't we? We got yeah. black and gray running public hats. Some are fleece lined, some are not. And they're sweet because I've been rocking them for the last couple of weeks, sucker. And so they're going to be up on our store. What, I have this week? not. Uh-huh. I need to you don't even something. need a hat. You have nature's Why? hat. Oh, whatever. Because you have hair. I don't have a mop on my head. Look at this. Look what happens to me when I walk outside. The wind just yeah. whips my body heat right off me. Nature punishes you. It does. So we Anyways. have hats going up this week, fleece-lined or regular. They're going to be great. Yeah. Go on the website, buy them. That's it. Okay, now hard pivot. Hard pivot for us. All right. Every middle school and high school student starts their poor speech with, according to this quote by 18th century, po and then they say something. Like Everyone starts, poor speakers start with a quote because it's okay. easy and it's a great easy intro. You hear it at wedding speeches all the time. Webster's Dictionary says love is defined as, and then they move on with the rest of their crappy speech. I'm doing that today. Uh -huh. okay. Starting us Can't with wait. a quote. I don't think we've ever done this. Have we? From one of our own, though, I believe. Maybe not. I don't know where you're going with this. I'm starting with a quote from Ryan Kent. One of our own. Yeah, he is. Rich Ryan and I did a watch along for a High Rocks event a couple weeks ago. And Ryan joined in on our link and from, from his car after doing a, a trail run. I think he was out for like 90 minutes in the trails in Colorado. From the parking lot, he jumped in and was chatting and dropped some gold nuggets on us. But one of those pieces, this was a quote that just stuck with me. And I said, we have to do an episode on this at some point. So here is the quote. All right. This is going to change your lives, everyone. Volume allows wiggle. <laughs> you can't butcher it if you're going to start with it. Try again. My tongue just stuck to the front of my <laughs> mouth. Volume of training allows wiggle room for when a race goes bad. Training volume allows wiggle room for when a race goes bad. And I just loved it. The moment he said it, my jaw dropped. And I was like, he just said in, what is that, nine words or 11 words, what I would have tried to take 200 to say less eloquently. Love it. Way to go, Ryan. Give me your initial response to that, having just heard it from my, my really rumbling, stumbling, bumbling lips. I love it. I love it. I don't know if you recall, but after I had become somewhat healthy on the running front for a little while, I'd been stacking a little more volume, bumping up my days. And I'm not running crazy volume right now or anything. I told you that I feel like no matter if it's like a good day or a bad day, the gap between the two has shrunk with my consistency. Yes. Being like, even if I go out and have a bad day, I can hold on to a, a respectable performance because I've earned that with the volume of training I've been able to do. And I've noticed that I'm not missing the mark big if I do now on a bad day. And we had this conversation on this podcast, might've been a year ago though. And um, I didn't put more concise words to it, but um, that's exactly what he's outlining. More volume is an insurance policy on your race performances, so to speak. So I love it. And I've been experiencing it. Yeah. And, and so when we talk volume, in training, I think a lot of times it just gets thrown around and people think about it differently. It is literally the type of volume definition that we all had back in science back in the day, which is the amount that will fill up a beaker. So like think volume of liquid. 
you have a 500 milliliter flask, however many milliliters you have in there, that's the volume. It doesn't speak to what makes it up. It's just how much is literally present in that container. So when you talk volume of training, it is your total time spent training. You could look at distance or time, but just how much work overall are you doing? We're not necessarily talking miles, but we are talking total work in your training. It doesn't speak to intensity, just overall volume of work. Yep. Conditioning of any sort. Conditioning. Yes. And so what he's saying here and what he went on to talk about is that anyone... Any style of training can set you up to be successful in a race or a workout. You can nail a race off being a low volume, high intensity athlete. Someone who only trains 10 to 15 miles a week, but does a a high percentage of your work as intense work. You can nail a race off being high volume, low intensity. You can do medium volume, medium intensity. You can be high volume, high intensity. All of these things set you up to be able to hit a race well. But his point is that when things go askew, when it goes off the rails, when the race starts too fast and you have to hang on or starts too slow and you have to accelerate or the distance is longer than you thought or the terrain's bad or it's terrible weather or people around you are surging or you feel crappy or you have stomach issues, anything that pops up, the bigger your volume of training the more wiggle room you have for things to go wrong and be able to still handle it and salvage your day. Whereas if you are a lower volume athlete, you have less wiggle room for things to still go right. It doesn't take many things to pop up on your trail before you're tripped and thrown off course and you just can't handle it anymore. Yeah, I feel like in the low volume athlete category, and again, we're not just speaking running, like we're speaking all modalities like aerobic conditioning and everything you put into your training. Um it's like a roll of the dice sometimes. Like in my racing, I've gone out and nailed races on lower volume, trying to like, what would you say, like patch job, a lead into a race, even though my body isn't capable mm-hmm. of high volume at the time. And I've gone out there and been successful. Um, just as often though, I've gone out there and been like, where, what version of my body did I get today? Because it wasn't what I'm capable of. And it's such a roll of the dice. It's like playing Russian roulette and you're filling half the chambers with a bullet. You're like, I don't know if I'm going to be shooting one or I'm going to be shooting a blank right now because um, there hasn't been enough uh, consistent bank deposits. It's like your like your bills are higher or equal to what you're putting in and you're not building a cushion for when things go bad. You could almost relate it that way. Mm-hmm. And in recent times, um, I've had some workouts where my body felt like junk in the last few months. And then I go back and look at the metrics that I hit and I'm like, for feeling like junk, that wasn't so bad. And I've just experienced mm-hmm. that more and more recently. But yeah, I am. Um, I'm tracking with what you're saying for sure. Can you think like I think back to high school, um, high school, I had an old uh, it's like a runner's world calendar. And all I did is write a number on the day for how many miles I ran that day. It was like, you know, like a big calendar hung on my wall. And I think my peak mileage, my senior year of cross country, I hit 18 19 miles and that was it and i look back on those races and i'm like i was a loose cannon like one race like i do nothing different i that so i thought and i'd go out and feel great and nail it and then the next very next race i'd go out and i would lay an egg and i couldn't figure out why well i think i can look back now and probably figure out why i had no cushion i had no wiggle room you've been there for sure 
And the first time I felt it in the positive when, was when I had moved out to Colorado and committed to running more volume, getting a lot of vert, doubling a few times a week, and doing longer workouts. I was in no better 5K shape. I couldn't run any faster in a mile, but what I could do is handle things that went wrong. And the, I ran a race that, that spring, and about 20, 25 minutes in, my legs were really hurting. I was just heavy. I was already redlining. I had those feelings of that in the past have meant this is it. This is a, you're just going to bleed out all the way in. But what I was able to do is say, all right, I'm going to try one more minute. I'm going to surge for one more minute and see if I can reel anyone in. And at the end of that minute, it's like, all right, I'm going to do one more minute of this. And I still feel crappy, but I'm going to try one more minute. And what it allowed me to do is keep working hard despite the fact that my body wasn't having a great day. And then eventually I caught someone and then I caught someone and then you get that boost of a race. And now I have all this extra fitness waiting that I was able to close the race faster than I started. And that was not available to me in the past. I'd tried those same strategies in the past. This race ended up being like an hour on the head. That's, that's 35 minutes of, of racing hard and doing better after I thought I was done. And in the past, mm-hmm. I'd try that strategy. I'm like, all right, 60 more seconds, just go for it. But you push down the gas and there's nothing there. Like you're already topped out. That was the difference. There was always a little bit more, even though I didn't think there was. Even though I was no faster, I, I could survive those bad points. Mm-hmm. And, and not to get this, because I believe, what was it, maybe a couple months ago, we did an episode like, when in doubt, go longer, right? Mm-hmm. But the premise of that, um, episode was more like you can train for your longer race and always race down quite effectively, but it's hard to right. do the opposite of, of that. This is actually speaking in like an even bigger generality saying like layer in work, lay foundation, put that nice cement platform to your fitness out down is, is in any way possible because, um, it's that insurance policy I talked about. So we're not, these, these are very separate episodes in, in probably the point we're making, mm-hmm. even though they are paralleled because they do follow suit with each other. Um, this, this angle is a little bit different. Um, so, so I used a couple examples with myself about, um, you know, noticing more at times in my life when I've had more volume and then more consistency and then times when I've had less volume, less consistency you mentioned back when you moved to Colorado, um, you refer to it a lot. You re- look back and you say, well, that was probably the most consistent and the most fit I've been. For anybody who doesn't know, uh, if you're not a longtime listener, Bracken moved to Colorado in 2000 and what, 15? 14 Six? or 15. 14? It was a two-part process. We first went out in 14. We committed in 15. Came back in 17, 18. Okay, so you went out there, you unearthed from Wisconsin, went out there to go live the full-time athlete life. You said it's the most consistent you've been mm-hmm. with your training um, since, uh, well, probably ever, right? And I remember when I first started getting into this sport, when I first started getting into this sport, uh, I was consuming a bunch of media content like 2016, 2017, and uh, Bracken Crocker was always on those NBC footage videos, you know, as a contender for the podium or somebody to watch out for. And I have to imagine somewhere in there, you didn't show up and feel your best in one of those races, yet you still were able to perform all of them. And I think all of them. 
Okay. Yeah, because I wasn't the best. And so trying to run someone else's pace always makes it feel like you're not having a great day. Yeah, that's fair. It hurts from the gun. So like, yeah. if you could describe it, because I'd watched, I'd watched that initially when I got into sport. Um, like, how would you describe how it feels? Like you had that insurance policy on your fitness during that time and you were able to show up and put out, as I call it, no matter what, like, what would, what would you describe that feeling? Like once you're in the heat of the battle, like why it works. It's like a sense of calm. And and my dad at one point, uh, he emailed me and he said, good luck this weekend, but I know that phrase isn't needed anymore because at this point, I know you're just going to find a way to take care of business. Yeah. And it was, you know, it's the kind of thing a dad should say to your your kid when you're before competition, but it it actually accurately summed up the way I felt, which was one way or another, I'm going to find a way to to not have a big gap, like you said, between my ceiling and my floor. Like if I nail it, I might take first. But if I don't, I'm going to find a way to hang on for third. It, it kind of felt like you're playing poker and no matter what hand you're dealt, you have been assured beforehand that on the flop, you're going to get something. Yep. So even if the race starts and you look down, and you're like, pair of twos, or I have a five, two unsuited in my hand. I know I'm going to flop 5-5-2. Right. Or whatever. You know, it's it doesn't matter what I'm holding at the start line. You have confidence that something good is going to come. That's, that's the best way I can describe it, that I may not win, but I know that if I just keep on it, I'm also not going to do poorly. So it has as much to do with confidence as anything. Absolutely. And I don't know if which one comes first. I think the volume of training leads to confidence because you realize, I just kind of feel bulletproof, but... It took the first race it, because this is difficult. We talk about this every year at the beginning of a season. Like, don't expect this to feel better. It, it may not. Just because you're in better shape doesn't mean that racing gets easier. You just have to race faster mm-hmm. people. And that first race, it took that first race of the year getting out there and getting punched square in the face. But instead of falling down, I took one step back and then moved forward again. And you realize like, oh, I didn't, I didn't used to do that. That's cool. It took a a race showing me that I could do it before I started to have the confidence and the trust. But yeah, at that point it's just knowing the next card that's going to come out is going to be better than the card I have right now. I like it. It's like, I don't know how many analogies we can use for this because we could probably come up with a bunch of them, <laughs> but especially you, you look like you got another one already. <laughs> it's, it's like if you're living paycheck to paycheck and your heat bill suddenly is higher than it usually is and you have to scramble to make ends meet, that is what like racing yeah. on low volume is like you get a flat tire or something happens to your car and it throws a complete wrench in your next month because you have to move and shuffle mm-hmm. everything around. That's perfect analogy. Yeah. Putting extra money in that bank every week, every month, suddenly all that stuff isn't even noticed and it's going to take your house burning down mm-hmm. sort of catastrophic event for you to have to start reprogramming what the heck is going to be coming up with your finances And I really believe with racing and extra volume that if you have done more volume than is even really required for the task at hand, it is such a cushion that it would take the catastrophic event like food poisoning for you to have a bad race Mm -hmm. or some sort of insane jet lag of 16 hours or whatever it might be to throw a wrench in your schedule. But a little tummy ache, a little over fatigued, didn't get good sleep the night before, your shoe fell off. None of them. Allergies are bothering you. Didn't have the right food that morning at the hotel. 
you've got so much extra money in the bank. Those are just speed bumps at this point. And it's so dang true. And I can't think of a, a clearer way to put it in non-running terms than that one. No, I love that. And it's exactly right. If you have $1,000 in your bank account or a million dollars in your bank account, does that millionaire have any more effectiveness at paying off a $50 bill than if you have 1000 No, because $50 is $50. If you have it available, his 50 doesn't hit any more effectively to the other person's account than your, than your 50 does. $50 is $50. But like you said, when something pops up, he doesn't have to scramble. He can just pay it and move right back on with life, whereas you have to start making business decisions. Exactly. So, yeah, I, I really like that analogy. I was going to say a fire extinguisher, Kirk. Oh, let's go, let's hear it. <laughs> you've had to buy a fire extinguisher because you have a camper. Mm -hmm. And so I'm sure you've gone through the process of fire extinguishers, bait, whatever composition they have inside of it is rated for a certain type of fire, grease fire versus a wood fire or a chemical fire. You buy a different type of fire extinguisher for everything, but there's also the size component. And a, a one liter versus a 100 liter fire extinguisher are both going to be equally effective at putting out a small fire. But if the fire reflames back up or you accidentally knock over a bottle of booze in the middle of it or your propane tank catches, that little one can't handle that anymore. But the big one, you just turn and keep spraying. Even though they both can put out the same fire equally well, if that fire has a weird component that you didn't expect, only the big tank is going to be able to handle it. The other one, you're just out of luck and you got to watch it burn down mm -hmm. and then you got to rebuild your camper or buy a new one and then get a bigger tank next time. I like that one too. I like yours more. My camper came with a fire fire exti fire extinguisher, but um, didn't have to That's go good. through that process. Yeah, I think okay. So I think we've made our point in theory, right? Like you get it. We could probably mm -hmm. make ten more analogies. I could come up with a few. Some are already in there, but let's stop that. Let's think. Okay, like what actually happens, right? Like more volume equals bulletproof racing. Like what happens? Okay, more volume or generally more commitment. What does that mean? It means you're going to get what probably more fit you're probably also going to get more fatigued in your training at times like if you're doing more volume mm -hmm. there's a good chance that you're going to have some down days or you're going to you know the hammer swings back just as hard as you swing at whatever workout you're pursuing and and my true philosophy is one when you're a higher volume athlete again i'm not just speaking running um what that does is it actually allows you to taper into racing appropriately for one like like when you're a lower volume athlete and you're just getting from workout to workout and piecing things together that's okay i understand some of you need to do that for your life or whatever health injuries you're you're monitoring but um it like takes that element of assurance away like oh i can just reduce my volume and i know my legs will freshen up i know what it's like to run on tired legs i do it all the time so it actually allows your taper to be more effective when you're actually coming down from fatigue so more volume in that sense. Oh, I can pull two bike rides this week and shorten one of my recovery runs. And there I've reduced volume by 25%. And of course my body's going to respond to that. I've earned the right for it to respond to that. So being able to deload effectively into a race is something people don't really talk about from the high volume athletes, which assures that you're more likely to have a better race than not because you can taper and you feel like you can afford it. And then the other thing, in my opinion, is that you are so used to running under fatigue. We hear like the great John Albin say, like, I like to race with a little tension on my legs. We heard it from somebody else recently as well. I forget who it was. 
And it's like you're so used to running tired all the time, uh, which I guess isn't really glorious, but it happens when you're a high-volume athlete typically at times. Mm -hmm. That like you show up and you're a little sluggish out on the race course. Well, it's not an unfamiliar feeling, and you can sink your teeth into it instead of shy away from it. It's just like going to altitude and racing. Um, Go to altitude for two weeks. Are you acclimated? Probably not, but at least you know what it feels like to run at altitude because you did it two weeks before your race, and then you can actually approach the race because you understand how it feels. The same goes for getting out there and feeling like crap. Well, if you felt like crap before and you've done it often and you've still figured it out, you're just more likely to figure it out out on the race course as well. So like, I think those two points on far, as far as like more volume equals better consistent performances, like be hard to argue those two, in my opinion. No, those are really good ones. And that neither of those were really the, neither of those were really the direction I was going with that. So I'm glad you thought of those because they're, you can't really argue those. You're right. Mm -hmm. Another component to that is that when you're doing more volume, like you said, you're spending more time fatigued. And what that does is you end up recruiting more muscle fibers. When things fatigue, you gain more. So like scientifically, the way to recruit the highest amount of muscle fibers is to do the highest amount of intensity. Like sprinting at 100% uses most of your muscle fibers. Jogging at 20% of max speed doesn't. It's not one-to-one. It doesn't mean you're using 20% of your muscle fibers, but for sake of argument, let's just say that, even though that's not right. So those other 80%, which isn't accurate, but that other remaining muscle fiber, the only way to use that is to add sprints in to your workout somewhere or heavy lifting or do a ton of volume. As you fatigue 90 minutes in, two hours in, those muscle fibers that sprinting activated also get activated by long, tiring efforts. So it's the... It's the ability to use all areas of your muscles so that when you get to a bad point in a race, those aren't unearthed for the first time. They're in equal fitness to the muscle fibers that you use when you're just casually running because you've used them all and you've used them regularly. And you see that with a lot of athletes that don't have insanely fast twitch muscles. They're not super fast sprinters, but they're able to outrun people at the end of a race. It's because they have access to their full muscle. Really fast twitch people may not do a ton of volume, and so they don't always activate. Even though they have faster speed on paper, they can't access it late in a race. Whereas Mm -hmm. you see the people like in hybrid racing, Dylan Scott. Dylan can finish a race as fast as anyone because he doesn't have breakdown happen. And there's some power to that. The more often you're running, the more often you're running under fatigue, the more often you're recruiting a higher percent of your muscle fibers. And that carries over to wiggle room on race day. When things go wrong and you accidentally went out too hard, or you have to surge mid-race, or the climb takes more out of you than you thought, or you have the first twinge of a cramp, well, you have a whole lot more, a higher percent of your muscle to fall back on and recruit and drive real power on in that moment than someone who was scraping the bottom of the barrel in terms of fitness time, but they nailed some great quality workouts. Well, when you exceed the demands of those quality workouts, all you have left is all the other work that you did. And if there wasn't other work, that's it. That's where your race goes off the rails. Yeah. Your body gets good at becoming resource. It really does. One of my pet peeves. So I've been, I've been watching, um, 
these uh, high school footlocker national cross country championships all the way from 2000 on. It's been fantastic. I just watched a, mm-hmm. a young, like freshman or sophomore Connor Mance in 2012. And he looks like just the tiniest little thing out there. And he finished like 12th or 14th. I don't know how old he was there, but anyways, I've really been getting a kick out of going back and watching all these up and comers come around. Um, because it's just been fun now in hindsight, but point being, the commentators are great, and Kerry Tullison does a fantastic job, and the other people, I, I actually really enjoy listening to them. But often in the, the higher-end race scene, they say, oh, don't let him stick around too long. He's a 402 miler, and he's got the foot speed. So he, you know, it's looking like it's going to be his race. And you know what? It's never that guy's race. No, it's not. It's always the strength athlete's race. It's like the guy that runs 412 in the mile has a 10-second slower mile somehow out kicks the 402 miler or drives home the last half mile and wins and all of you listening here i i mean maybe that foot speed matters in an 800 a mile maybe a 5k on a track sure but how many of you are going out there and running 5ks in 13 to 15 minutes my guess is a handful of you at most and most of you are running it in double and in that case strength wins and by strength i mean endurance and by layering volume i mean literally layering volume and so i could not agree with that more and also you'll still hear it in almost every long distance race about somebody's speed being able to uh take advantage of i just watched jakob ingebritsen win uh the european cross country championship and although he could have won it with his speed he didn't what did he do i know you watched this he just ratcheted down yeah he started 1200 meters out and that's strength running right there Suddenly, in a blink yeah. of an eye, you're like, how did he become 20 meters ahead? He wasn't sprinting. He was powering. Powering comes from volume. Yeah, the only 1,500-meter gold medal of recent history by the United States came when Matthew Centrowitz won the 1,500-meter gold in Rio. And mm-hmm. we've talked about this race before because it's fascinating. Nobody wanted to lead. He got he got out fast. He's a master tactician. He got right to the rail and realized, I'm in first place. And everyone sat on him and he just decided, I'm going to run as slow as you'll let me run while still maintaining first place. And so he ran slow and then he ran slower and he just kept going. And then it started to ramp up and he stayed in first and he ended up running the last lap in 50 seconds, like 50.6 or 50.9, which is a very fast last lap. However, Matthew Centrowitz in that field had something like the eighth fastest 800 meter time which is half the distance of roughly of the mile that he was running the 1500 meters. He had in that race, Asbel Kiprop, who I believe has run 144 in an 800 meter. He had Tufik McCluffy. I think that's how you say his name. Who's run 143, I believe, and won the 1500 meter gold at the prior Olympics and is a monster 800 meter runner. And then you also, okay, so I'm not just going to list the entire field, Mm -hmm. but he had a group of people who on paper would beat him in the 400 meters and the 800 meters. But what none of those guys had was a 1302 5k and Centrowitz did, which means by the end of this race, he had used the least amount of his tank. So even though he was a second or two slower in most of the important faster races, it didn't matter. He could still run very close to his 400-meter PR at the end, and they couldn't quite do it. Now, he also had a head start because he was leading, but the fact is, if you said one lap to go, everyone's in a pack, who wins it? You would have picked Asbel Kiprop or McCluffy, most likely. And that's not what happened. 
another case in point, right? Yeah. I just think that's the way it tends to play out. Um, I said it before is how I, I, uh, I confess that I believe speed work is overrated. Not saying we shouldn't be doing this and this, and we don't need to go down that rabbit hole or tangent, but um, why don't we dive in just to give, uh, give the listeners something tangible, like, okay, so more volume is your insurance policy. If you can do more, obviously smart, purposeful work, but like, how would you, like, where would you suggest somebody starting with that? Well, this is where, like we said on the last episode, coaching is simultaneously the most over and underrated aspect to a runner's performance. This is one of the places where, and by coaching, I mean writing training plans. You can do that yourself. Mm -hmm. You don't need a coach for it, but you're your own coach. So coach, this is where coaching makes its money and it's identifying for the athlete, which end do you start on for building your volume? Now, two episodes ago, we talked about all the different styles of running plans from running, doubling every day and running huge volume to only running three times a week and doing volume through other things like Parker Valby does with elliptical or biking or whatever it's going to be. So it's deciding no matter what style you choose, how do you layer in more volume? And typically there's two places to start. You either extend the duration of your aerobic days or add in more frequency of it. Or you extend the duration of your intensity days or add more frequency of that. And each athlete's going to be different. But typically, if you're running consistently, the the easiest and safest thing to do is to start with your easy and long runs and lengthen those. Until you get to a point where, you know, any more of this isn't good. And then you start adding in frequency or adding in more to your intensity days. Whereas if you're only going to be a three day a week runner, you have to start lengthening your quality work while also you can add in more cross training over the top. So that's where I would start. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think the tendency, let's say you have the time, you're feeling super motivated. uh, You're realizing maybe you aren't doing enough, which kind of perpetually is the case if you're an endurance athlete to have that feeling. Um, is the tendency is going to be to maybe dive all in. And I'm sure there's a few of you like, I'm going to become a cyborg in 2023 and I'm going to go to the lab and go to monk mode like Kirk and Bracken say and just come out the other end this spring a freak. Well, I love your intent and I hope that happens. At the same time, I think you should um, do this with purpose and scaled, meaning, okay, this week I am going to, if I'm a four day a week runner, I'm going to add in a short fifth run and see how my body responds to that. On top of maybe uh, a recovery cross-training session on the bike that I typically wouldn't do. Do that for a few weeks and make sure the body acclimates to that. Then say, okay, I seem to be doing well there. I'm going to extend my fifth day of running and I'm going to extend my cross-training. Make sure that's all good. Take a few months to ramp this up. It isn't the flip of a switch. It's more of a, a slow burn, that tightening of the screws as we like to use in this sport. Um, with your volume. If you want to go nuts, if you really do want to go nuts and be like, well, I can't run that much and I can't bump up my running that much that quick, then I think your safe play would be to go get on the elliptical, get on the assault bike, get on the rower and just bank some mitochondria building aerobic work is what I would say. Um, that that's where I would probably start, but the tendency might be to just like really swing hard, you know, for the fences. And I would say like, yes, that's great, but maybe just, um, keep it keep a slow progression there most running studies have shown that you reap most of your aerobic benefits after 20 to 30 minutes now yep. 
these studies are never perfect because they're always studying a different population. And sometimes that's not consistent. It's hard to to really track the progress and the benefit of advanced runners because they've been doing it for so long. It's hard to move their needle at all. And then that's another spot where coaching really would matter is the experienced runner who's trying to find new ways to move the needle. But so anyway, most people can agree that once you pass 35 to 40 minutes of your aerobic work, you enter kind of that golden zone where now you're really starting to get a lot of the benefit out of the run. So I think one of the first things people should do is however many days per week you're running, get it so that you can run 40 to 60 minutes, depending on the athlete. I like that 40 to 60 minute window Mm -hmm. every single time you run. And once you can handle that, that's when you decide to add another day in. So if you're a three day per week runner, once you can run 40 minutes all three times, or maybe work it up to 60, now think about adding in a fourth. But this entire time, I think it's important to move daily. So elliptical on the other days, bike on the other days, row, skier, assault bike, swim. I don't care what you're doing, but doing something so that when it's time to add in more running, let's say I want a fourth day of running. I've said this before on here, but you don't want to be adding in a fourth day of moving and a fourth day of impact at the same time. You need that fourth and fifth day already to be in there in a non-impact format And then you start filling that day with impact. If you're cycling 60 minutes, maybe at the beginning that fourth day turns into a 20-minute run and a 40-minute cycle. And eventually you fill that up until you're running 40 to 60 minutes again on a fourth day. And then at that point you decide, do I want a fifth day? Or do I want to start increasing one of my days to a true long run? But I think that's the most stable progression form to do is fill your days and then start filling them with impact. Yeah, I agree with that completely. Um, you know, you kind of get the question like, okay, let's say you look at your results and you feel like you're plateaued. You haven't really moved the needle for better or worse in any direction for months, years, maybe once you become a tenured runner, sometimes that can mm-hmm. happen. And then you say, okay, well, what can I do to change this? And you go, well, I either need to go further or I need to go shorter and faster. I need to do one of the two. Nine times out of 10, the answer is the former, which is means I need to go further. I need to build more. I need to increase my stay power. I saw a post by a previous mm-hmm. interview, a uh, guest of ours, Tyler German. He went and ran 216 at CIM, and it's like his, it's like his uh, I don't know, seventh, seventh marathon between 214 and 217. And his post was, well, you know, obviously history has shown me that I am circling the same waters. And that means I need to either go longer and harder or I need to go shorter and faster, but something needs to change because I'm getting the exact same result. Maybe if you're Tyler German, he runs 120 mile weeks. His answer may be to go shorter, but it's after he has done that experiment for four or five years. Um, and And that might be the one out of 10 who's like, yeah, maybe I need to shorten it up and go faster. We always hear that occasionally, but for the non- professional athlete the one who's at home balancing life the answer is typically like sneak in more where you can i I would say that i would say that with certainty for most everybody without even knowing the circumstance including myself i think i would be better yet if i put in more time for sure yeah and it's interesting when we think about ourselves we think about why we generally can't do something or why it might not be a good idea But if you were having a coaching consult with someone and you were the coach, you'd be able to come up with some pretty creative ways for people. 
they would give you your same excuses. They'd be like, well, I can't handle, I get hurt if I run more than 20 or 30 miles a week. Like, okay, how much cycling do you do? Well, I don't really like biking or it bugs my back. Okay, how much elliptical do you do? Well, I don't have access to an elliptical. How much incline hiking do you do? Well, I don't, I don't do much of that. Okay, and let's say that's going to stress your hips and Achilles too much. You can only do that two times a week. How often do you aqua jog or swim? Or how often do you uh, go for walks outside? How often do you push a sled? You, know, you would tell someone all these other options they could do because you're not the one who has to do it. Right. But you understand that it would be beneficial. You could fill your volume cup in a myriad of ways if you weren't the person who had to endure it. So if you took your own personal bias out of it, you could tell yourself those same things. And I believe that everyone can handle 10 to 15 hours a week of of training. I'm not saying everyone needs to, but everybody could handle it if you just keep lowering down the impact and the skill requirement for whatever that is. If it was go do a paddleboard for an hour a day in the pool, everyone on earth who has full functioning legs can do that. But who's going to go do that for an hour a day? That would give you seven hours of cardio in a week. You're telling me you couldn't walk for three? or bike for three, of course you could. We could all be doing 10 hours Mm -hmm. of cardio. It's just, are we willing to fill out the non-running portions in a way that may not be like the single most enjoyable thing? No, most of us aren't. But we could all sit at 10 hours a week if we wanted to and then fill the running from one hour to two hour to four hours to six hours. And maybe someday you're a 10 hour a week runner and maybe you're never more than a four hour a week runner. But we could all hit the volume requirements of being a high-level athlete if we wanted to. Yeah. I have an example of that. One of my athletes, uh, Kira Belzer, shout out Kira, you listen. She just ran 240, God, now I'm forgetting, 247 in the marathon at CIM, which is moving. Oof. It's over a 10-minute 10, 10 PR in the marathon. She flew. And for her, I constantly feel like I need to hold back the reins. She wants to do more and more. She's a mother. She has a full-time job. She is hustling. And it's like... Every little bit, she's like, I don't know if it helps or not, but I'm going to do it anyways. Sorry, I added 45 minutes on the elliptical to today's assignment. And she's just adding in all these little things. And sometimes I like kind of yell at her, but most of the time I just let it all slide because her performances uh, show through. Mm -hmm. Um, And we've worked through tired legs leading up to the marathon and the taper did work, but she got out on course and she got caught up and she got too hot and she was running 610, 615 pace uh, too long. And then it hit her, you know, it hit her like it does in the marathon. And when she had to go to her reserves and just be like, where is my strength at? She didn't blow up completely. And she held on to finish with it with a 10 minute PR. And I can't help, but credit that to the fact, you know, race excitement happens to us all. Most of us go out too hot and she did a little bit, but nonetheless, I think it's just something as stupid as that little elliptical work, that little extra recovery run she had the time for when the kid was asleep that she snuck in there that allowed her to go out there and still hold on. Sure, she positive split slightly the back half, but I think, you know, when you see people cracking marathons, it looks a lot worse than what I saw at Akira, and I think it's because of the insurance yeah. policy she had on her fitness, without question. Absolutely. Yeah. The more you work out the more you're likely to add in some more workouts. Yeah. Everyone in their day, not everyone, most people in their day have at least 10 or 20 minutes where you kind of blink and you're like, oh, I just scrolled through this for 10 or 20 minutes. If you already worked out that day, you're a little more likely to add in a 10 or 20 minute easy session doing something. 
Now, does 10 or 20 minutes as a standalone workout help you much? Well, no, if that's your main workout. But if you've already done a workout, you enter this in a slightly compromised place, and it's almost like picking up at 30 minutes into a workout. You've already fatigued a bit, so you don't have to get that pre-fatigue out of the way. It's sitting there. So those 10 or 20 minutes are worth 40 minutes of a fresh workout, and that's the piece a lot of people miss. And if you work out more often, most likely you're not nailing the preparation for each workout. If you run three times per week, you get up for each run. You're having your pre-workout, you're stretching, you're maybe foam rolling, you're getting your shoes all set, you're, you're doing everything right and you go out and you do it. If you're running 12 times per week, there's probably five or six runs you're just like, oh, my stomach's so full and I feel like crap, but I'm just going to roll out the door and get moving. That, that's what happens. You get less specific about your preparation for each run. And that's another form of adaptability, which is you spent maybe three or 400% more time running off not ideal situations. And your body gets used to that. And then you don't need an ideal situation to run well because you did an extra 40% of volume that just all felt crappy. <laughs> you didn't have your coffee. You're just yeah. squeezing something in. And your body learns that routine, and then it's not beholden to your perfect routine. What that sort of makes me think think of is um, the more I've been running, and now I'm like up to five days a week. And if, for any of you that know my history, like I've struggled with chronic injury for a while. Coming back, I was at two days a week, then three days a week, then jumped to four, but had to regress to three. And now I've been consistently like able to run five with knock on wood, no aches or pains, and then I'm cross-training the other two days. I've been roughly a seven-day-a-week uh, worker outer lately, if that's a, a phrase. But um, anyways, what I have noticed when I run more volume or when I'm putting in more time is like when I was doing two, three, four days running much less time on feet, I'd get in and I could like feel pretty clunky at times. Like when I just start my recovery run, when I start something, not feeling fluid, efficient, not just going right into what the body knows what to do. One of the biggest differences I've noticed with increasing frequency and then duration is that I slip my shoes on and as soon as I start running within 30 seconds, my body's like, oh, we're just doing what we do. And that's kind of what mm -hmm. you want. Like you want your body to get out there no matter how it feels that day and it does what it does. The body literally does what it is told when you have that nice bank account built up. You can spend your money freely. It's fine. On a good or bad day, you can weather the storm. And I will say that on my lower volume days, my body didn't always do what I was telling it to do. And now it does. And it has to do with the efficiency. It has to do with the confidence. It has to do with the consistency. It has to do with absolutely everything. But I think like the main thing I can say, if you were to phrase it anyway, is like the body now does what it is told. And it used to kind of do what it wanted to before I started adding in more volume and consistency and it wasn't by any fault of mine i couldn't run as much as i wanted to but point being now the body freaking does what it's told i want to go run five minute pace i'll go nail it no problem whether i have a tummy ache or not not a problem and i feel like most people miss that point like they show up to the start line and they're playing russian roulette with like what is my body going to give me today i don't know yeah let's see hopefully it's one of the good days imagine if you got to every starting line and you were like doesn't matter if it's one of the good days I guess it's gonna, the body's going to do what it's told. And the only way you can build that confidence is by layering in, I feel like, relevant volume. I think I'm convinced of that now. So It's so true. Rust doesn't build up 
on machinery that's used every day. Hey. Dust doesn't settle on surfaces that are constantly in motion. It's really, really true. And if it starts to, because you're always using that thing, you address it in the moment. It just doesn't happen. I, I, I always found it was crazy uh, when I would go to Six Flags Great America. And you'd be standing in line and you'd be waiting and waiting. And if you look under the tracks, there's just so much grease built up and just piled up under that. I don't know if you've ever noticed uh-huh. that in roller coasters. Just crazy amounts of grease. But what you don't see anywhere is rust yeah. on most of them. Now, some of them do. They corrode a little bit. But like true bad spots, it doesn't happen because that thing's whipping through there every few minutes. So all they do is they just keep reapplying grease. And the roller coaster is responsible for just continually keeping it in pristine condition by always being in motion. It just doesn't take enough time off ever to build up bad spots. So can a piece break down through overuse? Yeah, and it happens all the time. But does the entire thing really ever collapse? Very rarely. Because it's always in motion and you know what you're going to get each ride. And that's the way our bodies are. And that builds you up to the point where you can do more in order to feel better. When I was at the peak of my volume, I'd get up before the race at like five and I'd jog two miles. Then I'd come back, I'd eat, I'd shower, I'd get ready and I'd go to the race and then do my warm up. And my warm ups have never felt better in my life than when I was doing a 5 a.m. shakeout. Because so I'd get back and I'd feel like, ooh, I'm loose. I, I can move right into my strides. I feel awesome. Very rarely in my life did I ever have that. And then if you're ever stuck the day before a race and you're too much time on feet or travel's bad, it doesn't impact your body. If you're a low-volume athlete, you can't have a bad day of too much time on your feet before the race. But if you're used to high volume, it's not work to your body. It's routine. You know, you look at our, you know, the sport of OCR in particular. Again, I know all you listeners don't run OCR, but you look at who now is sort of like emerging with like consistently pretty good performances and not everybody can win every race. We understand that's not how this works typically, but you look at like the livers of life and the high volume life stoke athletes, the ones who are always doing something. We just interviewed Chris Roglaski, which was an eye opening conversation. I think one of my favorite conversations we've had, um, in a long time, you look at a Ryland Shattig who is always, adventuring you look at ryan atkins and Lindsay webster who are always doing something we don't even know if it's necessarily running but it's always something and and then you look at some other athletes who maybe are a little bit lower volume or a little bit lower overall and we've seen some hit or miss performances and i'm not necessarily calling anybody out in the circumstance because uh, these athletes are great but you look at somebody like a vj jones who's had some really good ones this year and then he had a couple of tough ones this year and I'm not pointing it to low volume necessarily. There could be other things going on, like, you know, travel's tough, stomach bugs are tough, injury's tough. But there's typically bigger um, bigger swings between the great performances and the sh- shitty ones for people who are lower volume. And you can even see it on the high end. I feel like you can see it even on the high end, not just the humans yeah. out there listening. Um, and I'm trying to think of those really high volume athletes that I know in the sport of OCR in particular. And I'm thinking, like, when have they completely laid an egg? Like, I can't think of an instance that jumps out at me at all. But I'll tell you what, I can think of some instances where I did. And I wasn't doing a lot of life. I, you know, I can think of instances when other people who are lower volume did. You look at Orion Kempson before he became great. And he was a low volume athlete. And he'd come out and show glimmers of hope. And then he would, 
you know, bomb. And, and then he, what, what did he say he did to get better? Started running more. Imagine that. There's just a lot of examples of that yeah. making a difference for a lot of people. And I assume most of you listening fall on the end of lower volume than higher volume athletes. And so there's probably a pretty easy fix to wanting to get better and it start layering it in, really. Yeah. I mean, we're getting preachy here, but I think that's kind of the point. It is. It's a good way to end, which is reminding people that the, the time of the low volume athlete has passed. Low mileage runners can still have great success, yes. but it needs to be paired with overall work. And it shouldn't be a depressing idea. We are not telling people go out and run more. We're saying find some more ways to work in your schedule. And if yep. running becomes that option, embrace it. It's fantastic. We love running. Who wouldn't want to run more if your life and body allowed it to? But we don't think running's the requirement. Work is the requirement. And then hopefully running fills up in it. It creates a little bit of a vacuum and you just can do more over time. But everyone, it doesn't matter if you're elite or entry level, you'll do better if you do a little bit more work, as long as you do it in a way that does not impact you negatively through, through injury. That's really all it is. And more work is usually acceptable and accessible to us if we're willing to change what our view of work is you can add in more leg lifting more upper body lifting more easy non-impact cardio you can almost always add in more of that without a negative consequence it reminds me of my uh my first day of cross country my first week of cross country practice in college at uw oshkosh and we went out for a run remember i told you i peaked at 18 or 19 miles and even through the cross-country season, I was somewhat close to that. We went out, and I said we had a quality workout the day before, and we went with the upperclassmen for our recovery run following the quality session. And I said, I want to run five to six miles top, so can we just can you point us on the right route? We didn't know. We're new to campus, right? And they start running, and they just keep going. I'm like, we're getting pretty far away from campus. Like, are you sure, like, there's no turnaround or nothing? And he goes, you effing freshman don't even effing know what running effing is. And I was like, you dick. <laughs> He took me on a 10-mile recovery run, and I hated him for the rest of the season until I got to know the guy for it. Dragged me twice as far as I wanted to, and you know what? He was right. I thought five miles was far. I thought that was what I needed that day, and you know what? I went from being a 431-miler to a 412-miler, which doesn't sound like much in a season, from being a 1635-ker to being a 1535-ker overnight. And what did I do? He was right. I didn't effing know what effing running effing was until I learned. And then my perspective shifted and I was like, oh, this is okay. Like I can do this. My body will hold up. And it did respond. It was astounding. Now his approach yeah. to telling me wasn't correct. However, he had a point and he was right. Yeah. It's funny. Reminds me of that day. And it's and in the principle is sound. The execution poor could have also led to injury. Right. But the principle is sound. You don't have to add a 10-mile recovery run, but 10 miles of time worth of elliptical is not leading to a stress fracture. So we all have an entry level to more work, and that's our point. That if you are tired of races not going according to plan, if your goals are reasonable and your expectations lie within the realm of possibility for your talent level and your work level, the easiest way to smooth out those, those valleys is to do more work. Smooth it out. That's exactly the way.
from the highs to the lows, that graph's yeah. going to look a lot smoother. That's the goal with it all. Yeah. Yeah. You, you, at the end of the day, you, you, not at the end of the day, you hear people talk about, oh, he's a, he's a high ceiling athlete or she's a low or she's a high floor athlete. We all want to have a higher floor. High ceiling is fantastic. But the best possible thing is that your floor rises up. Your floor raises right up towards your ceiling because then you don't have to worry. High, high ceiling is gambling. High floor, that's confidence. That is lack of stress. You will be surprised at how your race day anxiety drops if you know your floor is super high compared to where it used to be. Who cares about your ceiling? What's your definable uh, floor? That's what you want. That's a good point. Floor is probably as or more important than the ceiling. Ceiling's sexy. Floor is comforting. Yeah. They like to be comforted out there on a start line. It's an anxious enough situation, right? Um, yep. What do you got for them? I guess if you don't know how to layer in a little more volume, uh, hop on the running public training plan. We give you options each day for duration, reps, things like that. Mm -hmm. You can pick and choose when to layer in. You could hire one of us as your coach to help you transition into a little more volume responsibly. Or you can do it yourself based on some of the things we taught you today. But uh, hopefully you got something out of it. I feel like we were a little all over the board, but we got our message across, right? This is an all over the board type message. This isn't an exact science. Yeah. Not a lot of direct tangibles with this one, but um, I don't got nothing else. I'm happy. I'm glad you're happy. I get to work out right now. That's why I'm really happy. What are you going to hit? I already did mine. I have leg builder today, and then I have ski erg intervals afterwards. Nice. Leg builder has a lot of lunges. I believe it. I did 70 minutes on the assault bike back and forth between strength circuits. Average heart rate of 131, still got in 30-plus sets of strength movements. The perfect combination, Bracken. Yesterday, Kirk, I ran at 10% incline, which is the lowest I've run at in six weeks. Mm. And I intended to get an hour of work in. I made it 28 minutes of running. I hopped off and finished up on the assault bike. Volume, baby. Just getting that volume in. And as the running fills up the volume, it's going to run. And even though you were disappointed that your body didn't hold up for a longer time running, you didn't just call it quits. You went in there and got that work done. Yeah, and I was watching these great YouTube mountain running videos. I didn't care what machine I was on. I was building my engine, watching the type of stuff I want to be able to do later in the year. Feeling inspired. All right, folks, we'll talk to you on Friday. See you then.